jinkies. Oh, what's that gross book made out of skin? It's not a book. It's a tome made out of skin. Ew. What's it say? Behold the collected apocrypha of Stacy Ponder, the writer for Final Girl. And Anthony Hudson, the programmer for Queer Horror. And together they are... Oh my god! Don't read it out loud! Don't read it out Stacy, it's Earth Day. Is it? Well, t- well, as of the people listening to this, it will be Earth Day. Yes. I see. It's uh, the one day of the year we celebrate Earth. I went to a lot of very earnest Earth Day concerts when I was a college student. <laughs> Earth Day was very popular. How earnest were they? Uh, like 10,000 Maniacs. Oh, yeah. I remember I went to a big one at, like, whatever the stadium is where the New New England Patriots play, that big football stadium. I went to an all-day one there, and it was like, the Grateful Dead. Oh, man. I don't know who I, I don't know who I, 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 I think 10,000 Maniacs were playing. They're probably who I wanted to see. And then you got, I mean, anytime you go to one of those things, the one band you want to see. You got to sit through so much trash you don't want to see. Oh, it's like three hours of openers and just mm-hmm. bullshit. And you're like, can I just sit at the back or sleep? Or just can someone tell me when they're on and I'll show up then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Grateful Dead, not my thing. Believe it or not, not my thing. You don't collect all the little tie-dye teddy bears? I thought you did. <laughs> That's, you, I mean, they don't like the music. They just love those teddy bears. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. It's uh, <laughs> not for me. Yeah, but Earth Day, who cares? No one cares about Earth Day anymore, right? Well, Earth, you know, the Earth does. This is like her pride. This is like the one day out of the year that she gets a snow globe at Target. <laughs> That's true. And, I mean, yes, we are on week 800 and humanity is crumbling, um, much like the capitalism that got us here. However, at least the Earth seems to be doing a little bit better than normal. Like, did you oh, see yeah. Venice? The canals are blue and um, they, they, they National Geographic disproved, you know, that dolphins were swimming in the canals now. Yeah. <laughs> but I did see that murderous dwarfs are running free through the canals again. Oh, good. In their little red, uh, their little red coats. Yeah. Little red duffel coats. Mm-hmm. That's so, a very, you know, that serial killer murderous dwarf was very stylish. That coat. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my girlfriends made it into one of those, um, some fashion magazine did like a do's and do not do's of fashion where they were just like black out people's eyes, basically like put the bar over people's eyes, but take candid photos on the street. Oh be, no, it's she like, not put she it was, she was a do, thank you very much. Oh, yay! Okay, good. Yeah, but I was randomly like at a doctor's office or something, like flipping through the magazine randomly, and I was like... Is that? And I recognized her, so I stole the magazine and was like, look, you're in this magazine. <laughs> that feels like a weird invasion of privacy. <laughs> yeah, because it was just a clear, I recognized her. It was just her with like a black bar over her eyes. <laughs> oh my God. 
She's but the point is, the only reason why I bring that up is because she was wearing a duffel coat. So it's a fashion oh, do. Yes. So that that's murderous dwarf knew what was up. So you bring that up not because she was, in fact, a murderous dwarf uh, tiptoeing <laughs> through the canals of Venice at a frenetic pace. I deny and confirm nothing. <laughs> Thank you. As it should be. As it should be. Protect the innocent. Uh, <laughs> did that whatever. did that perm on a hover round just go by with a murderous <laughs> dwarf in tow on a little sidecar? Don't make fun of our love. Right? <laughs> I'm not yucking your yum. <laughs> Don't yuck my yum. <laughs> oh boy, quarantine time. <laughs> it's quite a time. What was quite your new name of Quarantina Yother? <laughs> Quarantina Yothers. <laughs> oh, wait, there was more, though. She had a full title. Quarantina Yothers of Television's Family Ties. <laughs> welcome to the stage. Welcome to, please welcome to the stage. <laughs> Quarantina Yothers of Television's Family Ties. <laughs> anyway, it's Earth Day. Yeah, sure. So uh, we're talking about Mother... That one of the two of us was like, wouldn't that be so clever to talk about this movie? <laughs> one of the two. I wonder which one. <laughs> was like, you know, it's an allegory about Mother Oife. <laughs> what better time to talk about it than Earth Day? I think it's funny. <laughs> what other, yeah. what, how many, well, okay, we've got Godzilla. That's sort of, that's sort of horror adjacent, the original, right? Um, yeah. We have, what other like environmentalist horror films are there are there uh day of the animals any of those animal any any of the old animal attacks movies that are like yeah like day of the animals was because people were depleting the ozone like they were environmental Mm -hmm. most of the old animal attacks movies were because of man's uh inhumanity Mm. man's wanton disregard for the laws of nature Mm-hmm. Throwing trash everywhere. The next thing you know, the ants are really big, and they're <laughs> going to attack you because they ate your toxic waste. See? <laughs> well, I have been disproven. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, all I also those love great old movies. The innate, the innate mom warning that comes with you leave your food out. Next thing you know, the ants. <laughs> are really big and they blow yeah. fire <laughs> well those cockroaches in the movie bug from 1976 they can fart fire and if oh, you're blaming yeah. you should watch bug they do they fart fire and there's a woman uh, her hair catches on fire fun was fact that? it was the set from the brady bunch they used in this movie so if you fuck are you <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I'm quarantining others. Television's family times. I love bug. The cockroaches are, they can fart fire and they're sentient and they spell out, we live on the wall. Oh movie. my God, I need to see it. Do you think Starship Troopers was referencing that with the giant beetles that f- shoot lava fire out of their butt? Maybe. I would hope so. I would hope so. I mean, this is the thing. The old animal attacks movies. You either had 
a few animals that were very large. You know, your Knight of the Lapis, something like that, where the animals get really big. Or you have them regular sized, but you just get a shit ton of them, like in slugs. Why are there so many slugs? Why are there so many slugs? Slugs is so gross. If you've it's ever seen. disgusting. It's one of the grossest horror movies I've ever seen. And isn't that the director of Pieces? It is. Yeah, that movie's fucking disgusting. It really is. It's gross. I like it. It's, uh, I like it. It's a little too much, but I like it for what it yeah. is. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, I love animal attacks movies. What were we talking about? <laughs> oh yeah, Mother. Mother, a film with no animals but a, a house and a and a. Um, mm. This movie, this was uh, 2017 um, by the esteemed uh, Darren Aronofsky, uh, and I remember when this movie was coming out. It was, I would say, this is one of those films that was horrifically mismarketed. For sure. Um, I remember they, it was very similar to like what they did with the skeleton key marketing, but the skeleton key marketing was like kind of cute because they're like, what will happen to Kate Hudson? You know, like it was like they were like kind of trying to do like the Rosemary's baby, baby like trailer vibe or something. Yeah. And then they tried to do that again with Mother. So then people were expecting this movie where it's Jennifer Lawrence in a house and maybe it's a home invasion movie. Maybe there's a cult. I thought it was going to be a cult film. Mm-hmm. Or like a cultist film, or or Satanist or something. You see fire. You see, and and they're like, you'll never forget where you were at when you watched Mother. And then people saw the movie, and everyone said, "What the fuck?" Yeah, people hated. I, it. People hated hated this movie. It was such a big, huge flop. Gigantic um, flop. Gigantic flop. I think even if it had been marketed correctly, I think people still would have hated it because I oh, think yes, absolutely. The it does uh, become like I mean most of it, the majority of it is just kind of pure allegory, and I don't think mainstream audiences do very well with they they want every they don't see the metaphors and things always. And whatever's happening on the screen has to really happen and make sense in a straight narrative, you know? I think because the story, I mean, we'll talk about what this movie's about, but I think because the story is just a shade removed and filtered through a style or a narrative style from from what the actual story is that we all know that this movie is telling, if this makes any sense. People did not know how to read it and then did not see the allegory, even though it is, like you said, it's all an allegory. It's right on its sleeve. Yeah. It, it is a very direct retelling of a very famous series of stories. Mm-hmm. And people were like, but what the fuck is Michelle Pfeiffer doing there drinking that lemonade? <laughs> and then they got up yeah. in arms. Yeah. They, I, I, I think a lot of times audiences don't want to do any work, which is fair. Yeah. I, well, and, I mean, look at Suspiria. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anytime they have to think about something or, you know, they don't see something that happens as metaphorical or symbolic or whatever. They just are looking at the pure act of what happened on screen and they get upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that happened with this movie. Yep. I really like this movie a lot. Um, I'd seen it before. I think it might overstay its welcome. It's very long. Mm-hmm. I get the point that it's making. 
Mm-hmm. And then it continues to make the point for <laughs> another 20 minutes of screaming and yelling. Um, and it makes me feel very anxious at times. Very, very anxious at times. Yeah, which so I have to say is exactly the mood I'm going for right now. That's uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> what you. Sorry. What I really want to feel when I watch something. It's just edge of your seat, um, discomfort and tension and uncertainty. Yeah. That's what you're, that's the mosquito lamp that you're flying towards. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I do really like this movie. Um, I mean, even if I hated this movie, it would still be worth it for Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh. So. My fucking God. I was thinking about it. I'm like, is this the best? Is this her best work in this movie? Uh, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about Darren Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky knows what the fuck to do with an actress. Yeah. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer in this, maybe one of her best roles. Winona Ryder in Black Swan. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Barbara Hershey in Barbara Black Hershey Swan. and Natalie Portman in Black Swan. I mean, Jennifer yeah. Lawrence in this, mm-hmm. like. I, I haven't seen The Wrestler, but I do want to see it, I mean, almost exclusively for Marissa Tomei. Um, oh, unbelievable. And Evan Rachel Wood. Oh, and, oh. And, Mickey, and Mickey Rourke in that movie also. It's My like favorite a, actress, yeah. Mickey Rourke. Um, I mean, he's not an actress, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it's it's his best. He's a good actor, though. That's but the thing. That's uh, Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. I mean, this, Darren Aronofsky really knows how to pull a performance from an actor. Yes. Um, and is really incredible at fostering uh, space for them to create uh, and channel real work. Um, mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer, Jesus fucking Christ, she is a beast. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, uh, my personal favorite of hers would absolutely be Selena Kyle in Batman Returns. Um, but it's so campy and over the top and like, yeah. you know, and but this... There is a it, it it's so challenging because she plays a very 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 famous role that is a at least a two thousand year old character. <laughs> I mean, in terms of our cultural awareness of this of the character she portrays, um, and yet somehow she makes her completely her own person, mm-hmm. uh, and is so. Builds in all the pathos and everything while also maintaining uh, and adhering completely to the allegory that uh, she's functioning with. And it's... She she feels like a real person, and it's just, it's a very strange reality. But yes. she feels like a real person, and she injects enough small moments into it that are just God. so loaded. Like, there's, <clears throat> there's one point where she asks uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character, Mother... She asks her uh, if she has any painkillers. Jennifer Lawrence says no. And she just, Michelle Pfeiffer just replies with, okay. And just, it's such a loaded, Mm -hmm. small word that she's just conveying so much behind it. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's just nice to watch 
a fantastic actress do her thing. I was, I mean, before we were recording, I was talking to you about my my newfound obsession with Joan Didion, and in particular, images of Joan Didion standing there holding up her cigarette and looking like a motherfucker. <laughs> um, that's Michelle Pfeiffer holding her goddamn alcoholic lemonade in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Just staring into your core with that, with that family recipe lemonade. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ, she's amazing. Yeah, I, this very well, I think, is her best role. Um, the the work that she puts in, I mean, really the work everyone puts in. Um, I do genuinely love this movie. I'm a, I am a, I am a mother stan. Uh, I have been a mother defender since I saw it in the theater. Oh, sure. Um, because so many people were so violently reacted to it. Um, and I've, I'm interested to talk with you today about some of the things I've heard about, like the, the I've heard a lot of uh, misogyny attributed to this film. I've heard uh, a lot of um, negative sort of critiques of Aronofsky and the artist muse complex and theme. Oh, sure. Um, and I think this movie does tackle these things or it's, it's definitely around the air of the film, but I think, I don't know. I, I really think this movie is kind of a masterpiece, at least in, um, in uh, as a technical feat too because uh, if you look at how it was filmed i mean this thing was rehearsed as a play for like three to four months in creation mm-hmm. and then they built a physical two physical sets and then you know when you see by the end of it when the film is overloaded with crowds of people representing all of human history and everything's bonkers that was all happening on set in camera yeah like the the effects were, you know, here's some CGI blood, or here's uh, a wound, or here's um, a view on a window and green screen. But otherwise, this thing was all happening, <laughs> which is just nuts to me that physically they pulled off this film, and physically that the actors pulled this off, especially Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I know, I know that it's, I know there's a lot of ways to read this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have all of the biblical allegory and all that. For me, my big takeaway is like the artist muse relationship and the creator creation and the creator audience mm-hmm. relationship. Like those are all the things I connect with the most, I guess. Yeah. I think I bring a lot of my um, Catholic guilt slash background, Catholic, Catholic trauma, I'll call it, um, to when I watch this film because... For me, this is a, and what I really love about it is that it, I think it is a direct fuck you to Judeo-Christianity and mm-hmm. um, to the Bible and to religion as a whole. And, uh, and I think it's one of the few pieces I've seen that implicates religion in um, environmental collapse and in climate change and... Mm. Uh, yeah, I think this is an eco-feminist film, um, mm-hmm. and I really love that, because I, I haven't seen a lot of that. And I, I've heard, like, I've been on panels, even at, at horror conventions, talking about this film, and I've I've been on panels with people who all opposed me on this, saying, you know, oh, it's misogynist, or um, why do you need to see her beaten, or, you know, and I'm like... Oh, brother. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm thinking, honestly, I think... Because what I lo- what I do admire about this movie is by taking as ham fisted as it might be in retrospect, once you understand everything that's happening, if 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 you've if you've dialed into that, um, to take 
some we don't take we don't contemplate the idea of the world being like a physical organism because it's just this vast landscape it's like it's setting for us and that's right. how michelle pfeiffer even refers to the house in the film as it's all just setting um and uh, to take it and to locate it in a house and to create the earth in a house and to make the earth personified by a woman and you see physical violence happening to her. Right. I, f- I feel like you really need that to convey what we're actually doing to the planet. And then, but then the problem is when people don't read that, <laughs> um, that intention and what that what that violence is signifying or what that person is signifying instead they're like well why is all that why all those people showing up in her house and peeing everywhere you know well that's the thing if you just read it as a straight film it's you're gonna be like what the heck is going on here why is this happening but i mean it's the same i mean i think it's as far as like why do we need to see her beaten it's the same argument can be said for like martyrs you know, there yeah. are people who just look at it as another torture porn film <clears throat> versus people who are reading into it and seeing. And you don't want to watch these things happen to these women. But does it serve a purpose? Is it ever necessary? I think sometimes, sure, to show yeah. it. I you know. I was, I mean, I was talking with Jason last night as we were watching it. And I was like, this is the shot. It's, you know, when Jennifer Lawrence is on the ground and they're all kicking her in the face. And yeah. that's the shot that I've heard critiqued the most. But for me, I'm like, that is crucial to this film, that sequence. Oh, sure. Um, and it's funny because I come from, and I, I think we both do, we come from feminist outlo- or worldviews and mindsets um, and politic where we don't want to watch that kind of content usually. No. Um, it's not something we seek out. Uh, and yet films like this and Martyrs, I'm not a torture porn girl, but no. I genuinely love both those films. I love the artistry of both those films, and I think they're feminist films. Yeah, I think when it's making a statement and how is it, and also how is it filmed? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Are we lingering on the violence so that it's it's like, a, you know, some viewers are getting some kind of pleasure out of it? No, I don't think that's the case at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I mean, even though like her shirt gets ripped, it, like it's it's not a uh, male gazy kind of shitty exploitation rape revenge kind of. Yeah. Thing, you know? Yeah. That's the difference to me. It's, you know. Yeah. You know it when you see it. What is being depicted? Who is benefiting from it and why? Right. And how? Um, exactly. Yeah. So, wow. So, mother, um, mother exclamation point, I should clarify. <laughs> well, we have him, as he is called, played by Javier Bardem. Ugh. He is a poet suffering from extreme writer's block. Uh, the film begins with him placing a kind of crystal, a clear crystal, on a pedestal in a burnt out house, and the house reforms around him. Uh, you know, all the paint is redone. The whole house is reformed. Everything is beautiful and back to normal. Uh, then in bed, Mother awakens, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Um, she is his wife. She is much younger than he is. And she doesn't know where he is. He's not in bed. She gets up and we kind of see their day to day. Occasionally, she visualizes. She has these small attacks 
where uh, it seems like her chest is hurting. She mm. visualizes a heart beating in the house itself. She'll place her hand on the wall and she can kind of see the house's inner life. Um, and she takes some <laughs> magic turmeric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what is this mixing <laughs> Basically, agent? Basically, this agent uh, that helps her feel better, but it seems when the house is under stress, she is also under stress. And it's also... Um... Uh, like a an agent that she incorporates into her uh, home repair too, because she is constantly fixing up this house, and she uses yes. that. She mixes that into like the the wall treatment she makes. Yes, she is single handedly taking care of repairing this house that they got. Um, she's doing all the remodeling, painting, and fixing, and doing this while. He just struggles to write and doesn't write anything because he's <laughs> suffering from block. Because he's when... <laughs> he's been diagnosed with fuckboyism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a knock at the door one day, unexpectedly, and there is Man, as he is called, played by the great Ed Harris. Thank you for saying great. I love Ed Harris. I love I... Ed Harris, and also I was like, Jason... He's still really hot, right? <laughs> he really is. He's just like a good-looking dude, man. He's a, he's also one of those act- sorry to continue to this tangent, but he's one of those actors that like when I think of him, I just think of him in Apollo 13 and I'm like disinterested. But then anytime I see him in anything, I'm like, "Oh my god, this guy is actually a great actor." He really and is. He's a big, he's, so. he's one of those actors I'm always happy when he shows up in something. I love him. Yeah. My immediate go-to for him is Creepshow, obviously. Oh, my God. Oh, he's also smoking hot in that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just, he looks exactly the same, just wrinkly now. Yeah, which is a yeah. plus. Which can be a plus. <laughs> so, man is a, a doctor, he says, and he was under the mistaken... Uh, thought that this house was a bed and breakfast and he was going to get a room there while he finishes writing a book about some medical whatever. Um, <laughs> the scientific term. That was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that could be on Fox News to talk about the quarantine. It really could. Yeah, but they have Dr. Oz quarantine. on. To... Yeah. <laughs> and quarantine the others. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he... Javier Bardem invites the man to stay with them because where else is he going to go? Why not? It'll be nice to have some new life in the house. Whatever. He hits it off with the man very well. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. See, this is the thing. Their names are him, mother, man, and woman. So it's a little difficult to talk to. But mother basically says, like, "Uh, please no. Oh, well. She is uh, overruled (laughs) by the man of the house. So, um, the man begins to immediately sort of, you know, um, how to put it? He begins to push the boundaries, you know? Mm -hmm. Jennifer Lawrence says no smoking in the house. Later on, she finds an ashtray full of cigarette butts. Mm -hmm. You know, just kind of making himself a little too comfortable. The next thing you know, there's another knock at the door. And, oh, the man says, I forgot to tell you that I invited my wife his wife is woman, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, my God. She, yeah, she is. She's unbelievable in this movie. And I think if this movie had been better received, she absolutely would have been 
nominated. It's honestly... For supporting actress. It's, it's crazy to me that she wasn't. It's an atrocity that she wasn't. Add her to the halls of the, the ignored actors in great performances throughout time. Yeah. The never-ending snubbies. Yes. But... This, I mean, I think Jennifer Lawrence, out of all the, Jennifer Lawrence went on a streak where she was nominated for every fucking thing she did, whether oh, she like kind of. Ever since Winter's Bone, like every year in a row, she was nominated for Best Actor. Yeah. And then this comes along and they're like, uh, no. Remember that other movie where you put on a wig, though? Yeah, this, I'm sorry, this was her best work since. Since Winter's Bone. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, this one. Um. So, Man and Woman. Uh, oh man, I don't even know how to describe woman. She is. <laughs> she kind of would like to speak to a manager. She just doesn't have the hair to match. Yeah. <laughs> she, they both just kind of take over the space. Um, at this point, the poet, I'll call him the poet. Yeah. The poet has told the man the story of the crystal that he we saw him place on the pedestal earlier. And that was uh, some years before his house burned down. And this was the only thing that he salvaged from the wreckage. Was this crystal? It means the world to him. This crystal inspired him and is what got him writing his poems again. Mm-hmm. After nothing. This crystal, no one is allowed to touch it. Don't go in my study where it is on display. No one is allowed in there without me. This crystal means more to him than anything in the world. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know... Man and woman have gone in there. The crystal falls to the ground and shatters. <gasps> they go in and and they're like, oh, the man is like, I just wanted to show my wife. I just wanted to tell her the story. And the woman is like, oh, I'm so sorry. We'll buy you a new one, which is like. <laughs> we'll buy you a new mysterious <laughs> glass crystal. Yeah, we'll buy you a new one. Jennifer Lawrence is finally like, I think you two should leave. And woman says, we said we were sorry. We said we were sorry. <laughs> and I just, this is when I start to feel anxious because Jennifer Lawrence is completely impotent through yeah. a large portion of this movie. There is chaos happening all around her and all she wants is for these people to get out of her fucking house. It is every, like, homebody introvert's worst nightmare. Yes. yes. <laughs> it is the uninvited she, guest. <laughs> the uninvited guest who just completely takes over, makes a mess out of everything, you know, just you can't get them out of your life. But Jennifer Lawrence is determined. She goes down to the basement to get their laundry. They're already doing laundry. Like, what is up with that? Uh, she goes to get their laundry to kick them out of the house. And when she comes back upstairs, they're having sex. Michelle like, Pfeiffer is <laughs> in that fucking lingerie kicking the chairs around. <laughs> Like, oh my God, like, what is next? Well, did you need something? <laughs> did you need something? <laughs> she is unbelievable. She, I love it. How oh. did, like, even though we said we were sorry, she's just like this regressive, like, she is a, a, a middle aged woman she's channeling a teenager. The entitlement. Oh, I love her. There's so much entitlement. She is white woman from hell. And white woman from hell. I love her. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying to yourself, what can happen next? Well, I'll tell you what happens next. <laughs> That's just ding. the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Ding dong. There's more people at the door. Who is it this time? Oh, it's man and woman's two sons oh. who are in the middle of a fight over the will. The man has revealed that he's not a doctor. 
He's actually the poet's biggest fan. But he's dying of some mysterious illness, and so he sought out the poet. He just wanted to beat him before he died. So uh, the poet is flattered by this, doesn't see this as cause to kick him out. He's dying, and he's my biggest fan. They can stay. That's totally cool. The sons show up fighting over the father's will because one of them has been written out of it. They tussle. They tussle some more. Jennifer Lawrence is like, what is happening to my life? (laughs) Um, The next thing you know, one of the sons strikes the other son. And he's, uh, if not dead, he's very close to dead. He's bleeding all over the place. So man, woman, and poet take the bleeding son to the hospital Other son runs out the door. Jennifer Lawrence is left alone to be afraid for her life because the uh, violent son is still lurking somewhere about on the property. Oh, my God. And she is left alone to clean up the big pool of blood that's on the floor. Which is now beginning to create a rotting wound in the floorboard. It's creating a vaginal-looking rotting wound in the floorboards. Um, She notices that she can kind of see through it into the basement. She goes down to the basement, and there's a section of wall that has clearly been walled over. And uh, you start to... At this point, we don't know what is going on. This seems still... At this point, it seems like it's still some kind of horror movie, right? Yeah, the, like, the first half, it, that Polanski sort of section, as that as a uh, person really astutely referred to it, is, kind, is more of like, you're just a discomfort, home invasion-y-ish, home, home horror, yes. home thriller. Yeah. Yes, we don't know what's happening. So as a horror savvy viewer, when you see the walled up area in the basement and she picks through it and finds an oil tank that has been walled off and you're saying to yourself, is this the dark heart of the house? You know, is this some Hill House nursery? Is this the Amityville basement? Yeah. Is this the Red Room in Amityville? Like, we don't know what's going on, but that's certainly where we're being led as viewers. Mm hmm. Um, no, but I'll tell you what it is. It's Chekhov's oil tank. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's what we've got. Chekhov's oil tank. It's got underworld frogs and everything. Exactly. So, finally, the poet returns from the hospital. The son has died. The son who was injured. The other son has come back and grabbed his wallet and left again. Uh which is kind of a strange moment. We're in fear for Jennifer Lawrence's life. What's going to happen? He just forgot his wallet. (laughs) (laughs) So he leaves. So the poet returns home. The son died. Everything is sad. The next thing you know, that's a a big transition. The next thing you know, (laughs) that's what keeps happening in this movie. Man man and woman return from the hospital. They are in mourning clothes and they've brought a group of friends with them. The poet has told them all, since they have nowhere to go, that they are welcome to gather in the home and remember the son that they have lost and the other son who is now out in the wilderness. People just keep showing up at the house. And poor Jennifer Lawrence is like, what the fuck? I spent the day scrubbing blood off the floor. I'm in my dirty clothes. All these people are in my house. What's going on? The husband is like, it's fine. It's fine. They just have some things to say. And then people just start 
they go upstairs to the poet's bedroom and they're going to try to have sex in the bedroom. They repeatedly are sitting on the sink that isn't braced to the wall. No matter how many times Jennifer Lawrence says, please don't sit up there. And Stevie they... from Shit's Creek is a fucking nightmare <laughs> monster that keeps bouncing up and down on that sink. <gasps> was that Stevie? That was motherfucking Stevie. Oh shit, I did not recognize this her movie. Is so different. This movie is a, a testament to Canadian actors because also we get um, uh, Stephen McHattie from Pontypool. Yes, I recognized him. I did not recognize Stevie. Yep, oh, that was Stevie. With that, huh, with that different hair. So people are just doing whatever they want in this house, running amok. Uh, and Jennifer Lawrence and I are both starting to go a little crazy from it because <laughs> this is when my anxiety really kicks in. And you just want Jennifer Lawrence to like kick these people out of the house. Do you know what I mean? She's like, please don't sit up there. Please. Like, she's trying to be polite, and it's like, no, we're way past politeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people do get out of the house, right? Like, finally, how did they... Oh, the sink. The... Finally, the sink falls off the wall. Stevie b- breaks that fucking sink. <laughs> Stevie the wall breaks explodes, the sink. And we have, a, we have a kitchen flood. Kitchen flood, And mother finally. starts screaming at everybody, get out. Get out of the house! so they do and she's angry finally and she's storming up the stairs and uh, she's like why do you let these people in the house you know and he's like it's nice to have some life around he's feeling inspired by these people right like it's nice to have some life in the house blah 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 earlier he had said that they were trying to get pregnant or they wanted children which wasn't true and she says you know you say you tell these people that we want to have kids and you won't even fuck me Mm-hmm. God, this that section when she tells him off and he's saying he wants these people there. She says, this isn't about them. It's about you. I've built this house wall to wall. You can't write a word. Mm-hmm. He's impotent as a writer and as a lover. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's nice when she does like stand up for herself. Yeah. And tell him off at several points in the film. And I like it. Well, we'll get to it later. But... Yep. She finally does some shit I like, and it feels so good <laughs> as a viewer. Like, that feels like catharsis to me versus, you know, that's always the line about horror movies. Oh, they're so cathartic. It's like this plays so expertly with winding you up as a viewer, getting that anxious anxiety, like, wound up to the max. And so when she finally does lash out or fight back or whatever, it feels really good. You only get, like, three of those moments. But you only get small moments. Man, and they are, are you so grateful for them because they're they powerful. They are wonderful. They yeah. are well-earned and wonderful. So her insults to his manhood uh, have the desired effect, and the two of them have steamy sex times. <laughs> that that, that <laughs> late-night Skinamax saxophone comes on. Absolutely. <laughs> Legs wrapped around uh, torsos. The whole business. The next morning, she tells him that she's pregnant. She just knows she's pregnant. And then a moment later, she is super pregnant. She's vastly so we, pregnant. She's vastly, like, ready to drop that baby pregnant. To so the point assume... that you, you're seeing arms popping out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pressing on her uterine walls. It's, uh, you know, it's she's super pregnant. So we can assume that some time has passed. 
Or in this movie, you kind of never know. Maybe it really is only the next day. Yeah, this is just <laughs> mother's mother and the very, <laughs> the no good, terrible, very bad day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So after this, with the pregnancy and all of the, and the sex times and everything, the poet is finally inspired. He begins to poeticize like a madman he's writing words like you would not believe he goes back to his he's got the paper and the pens and he's doing his thing finally he's finished a poem right and he gives it to her lets her read it and she is moved to tears it is so beautiful and it's actually, I think it's actually really well done because nobody reads it aloud. We don't see a single word of it. We kind of get like a visualization of this poem, mm-hmm. right? That plays out. And I think that's really smart because there, you know, how many times have you watched a horror movie or something? And it's like, oh, have you, have you seen this video? It's the scariest thing you've ever seen. And then they show it and you're like, what? Or there's Lauren Bacall's play in the film. <laughs> Play. Like the show's amazing, and we're like, it's "What amazing. is this?" Yeah. So if Jennifer Lawrence was moved to tears, and then it was like <laughs> Lauren McCall in S and M gear. <laughs> yeah, like your hair is pretty. <laughs> I like the way it looks. You know, like if it was just a shitty poem, so they don't show it, they don't read it, but we kind of see what's happening. Yeah. So she's thrilled. She's going to make a dinner to celebrate that he's finally, he's written a masterpiece. The next thing you know, it's basically already been published. She's shocked. This is where the film really moves into allegorical territory. The reality it, departs. Reality is gone. And so if you're just looking at what's happening as a straight narrative, you're going to get angry, I think. Yeah. Because basically Jennifer Lawrence thought she was the first one to see the poem, that he had literally just finished it. And then there's a knock at the door and it's already been published. Everyone else has already seen it. She's kind of almost the last one to know. Uh, And then people show up at the house, his ardent fans who want to get a copy of this. They want to touch him. They want to get him to sign it, all of this. And then it's like all of human history basically Mm -hmm. eventually plays out. The house is jam-packed with people. There's a rave happening. There's thievery happening. People are, you know, pulling the phone off the wall to take it because it's the poet's phone. There's women being sex trafficked. Uh, There's a literal church slash cult forms around the poet. Um, There's protests. There's protests. Riot police and wars. It's... A literal war zone. Um, his publicist, played by Kristen Wiig, when you're like, when Kristen Wiig shows up, you know a movie's going off the rails. Oh. Right? Like, I love her. And she's really actually quite subdued in this for Kristen Wiig, I would say. I am a huge Kristen Wiig stan. Yeah, She sure. excels at horror. I mean, if you've seen yeah. Welcome to Me. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> She has, I I guess like most comedic actors, she has a very, very dark side. Oh, yeah, for sure. works great in this film. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, By the time it's over, there are people on the floor with hoods on, and she is walking around executing them, just point blank shooting them. Two guns in hand, just like not even aiming, just shooting them in the head as she passes over them. (laughs) Yeah, so you're like, what the heck is going on at Mother's house? <laughs> well, 
the baby is like, guess what? I'm ready to come on out. And so uh, <laughs> in all of this, um, ever since the crystal got shattered, the poet had boarded up his study. Um, they tear down the boards he put over it so that she can, so mother can go into his study and give birth away from the clamor of the crowds because he won't ask them to leave. They are his fans. They deserve his attentions. Uh, they deserve to be there for this. So she finally gives birth in a great birthing scene. I think Jennifer Lawrence does a really good job. Yeah. Of, uh, conveying the pain that it must be. Yeah. To push out a baby. Yeah, she she went to places filming this. I mean, she broke her, she tore her uh, diaphragm and popped a rib out um, just from her acting <laughs> so yeah. hard. She acts the fuck out of it. Uh, so he, she has the baby. It's a baby boy, and they have a nice little family moment for like ten seconds. And she's like, "Can you please?" What's going on with the people? People were finally quiet outside. So the poet opens the door and, oh, they're leaving us gifts. They left them some fruit. They left her a sweater. Isn't that nice? Why are they being so quiet? Will you ask them to leave? The husband will not ask these people to leave. They want to see the baby. Let's just show them the baby. It'll only take a second. They want to see him. They're still here to see the baby. Jennifer Lawrence says no. She knows that that's a really bad idea. These people have torn the house apart, essentially. Uh, You're not going to show them the baby. And so she and the poet get into basically a Mexican standoff. They just stare at each other while she holds the baby, while she breastfeeds the baby. Um, And then she falls asleep for just a second. Him staring at her. Yeah, That vacant look in his face as he just stares at her with just desire to take that baby is maybe one of the scariest things in this movie yeah and then you're like oh yeah he was so good in no country for old men yeah yeah <laughs> you're like he can be fucking terrifying yes. when he channels that shit yeah uh so she falls asleep for just a second opens her eyes and he and the baby are both gone he is out there on a stair landing showing them the baby everybody's going nuts Uh, He turns around and he no longer has the baby. The baby is being passed around like it's fucking crowd surfing. (laughs) Motherfuckers crowd surfing, yeah. (laughs) At Bon Jovi or something. At a Bon Jovi concert. (laughs) Baby's being passed around and as a viewer you think to yourself, oh no. Oh no, what are we gonna, what's gonna happen? You gotta support that neck and head. You gotta support that neck and head and they don't and we hear a snap. And the next thing you know, the crowd is tearing the baby apart. They tear the baby apart and they're eating it. And mother loses her shit. And it feels so good to watch her go on a very brief rampage, snatching parts of her baby away from people as they try to eat it. She takes a piece of glass and starts cutting people slashing at them and screaming and it just it it really is cathartic as a viewer watching jennifer lawrence scream watching the rage on her face as she is full-on ninja skills slashing motherfuckers she is (laughs) cutting people's faces in half and blood is flying everywhere it becomes a slasher film for one second (laughs) for one second and it feels really good 
but it doesn't last. Um, the crowd overtakes her, the mob. She is on the ground, and they begin to beat her. Yep. And it's it is hard to watch. Yeah, it's rough for sure. You don't want to see it, but uh, you get it. I mean, they're right? kicking her nose in. They're breaking. Yeah, they are they're, breaking her face. They're breaking her face. The poet rescues her. Um, she escapes. She manages to get away. She goes down into the basement to that oil tank we saw earlier and uh, ignites it. And the building, everything is incinerated except for the poet. Who finds her? She is not looking good. She makes Helen and Candyman or Rhonda Johnson. (laughs) Formerly Valerie Johnson, supermodel spa owner. Right, small like, business queen. Small business queen. Like Jennifer Lawrence is at death's door here. To be fair, it's what Rhonda Johnson really should look like after that opening scene of Killer Workout. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, he lays her down. She's clearly dying, and he's like, "Well, can I have just one more thing from you?" And you say to yourself, "Wait a minute." Is this all just an adaptation of The Giving Tree? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I'm dying, but sure. Take one more take one more thing. That's totally cool. It's the fucking giving tree, right? Um, which apparently we have never learned a lesson from that book. No. But anyway. No. Um he takes her heart. She dies, turns to dust. He takes her heart and he smushes it. And what happens? It turns into the crystal that we saw at the beginning of the film. Everything is burned around him. He takes this new crystal. He places it on the pedestal again and laughs. The house reconstitutes itself. Mother is back in bed. She rolls over and it's a new mother. It's a different young woman. But she still asks where her husband is. And the cycle begins again. We got a whole uh, uh, James Joyce Ulysses loop, baby, right there. A whole big loop. This will happen time and time again. Because no matter how often he insisted that he loved her, she said, no, no, you never loved me. You just loved how much I love you. Mm-hmm. It's never is, enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. So that's that's the movie. This movie is fucking crazy. It's absolutely like the, the scenes where people are just destroying the house and it's full of people and it's just it's enough when it's only Ed Harris and you feel the intrusion, you know, and the entitlement and just making himself at home and just taking over the space. That is an that's anxiety inducing enough. When it's just wall-to-wall people, and Jennifer Lawrence is pleading with them to just, like, don't sit on my sink. Oh my God. Oh, man. Stevie's wound up. Watching. I mean, it really, the, that sense of, and Jennifer Lawrence, like, it, the, those sequences where she really does get to clap back are so wonderful, like you said. Um, but it also feels, as much as you want her to just be screaming at everybody, it feels very realistic given their relationship and the sort of power structure in their relationship that she oh sure she is expecting him to speak up but then also being a kind polite 
housekeeper um, kind of sort of caretaker figure, she doesn't exactly feel comfortable over it's seen as overstepping to just defend herself and her house right um but the, so those moments where she just loses it god it's fucking Im- i mean that ending when when she goes and she triggers fucking ragnarok and she's yeah she screams murderers murderers it's time to get the fuck and she claws his fucking face yeah out of my house and then runs down and blows up that oil tank like yeah. <laughs> god it is so so satisfactory um so earned yeah and it's it's but those those moments of like watching also what what fuels her anxiety and her terror and her this sort of sense of disbelief like like it's so well captured with um just all of eve's oh i called her eve (laughs) but you know all of michelle pfeiffer's um passive aggression and i guess it's even it's just aggression aggression um mm-hmm. e, like her her walking when she leaves the house and watching Michelle Pfeiffer just scowl at her that glare yeah. is the last shot of you see of Michelle Pfeiffer um seeing Kristen Wiig just being completely entitled to her time and just calling her oh the inspiration like mm-hmm. like she's just a footnote um uh and and Stevie Stevie when she's bouncing up and down that sink she's like that oh. an awful teenager that just won't listen where she just mm-hmm. like she is laughing and she's like, oh no, it's okay, and yeah. just keeps bouncing up and down with that like evil laughs, evil laugh um, that only Stevie could do. <laughs> she's perfectly cast in that in that very tiny role. Um, it is, I don't know how they fucking pulled this thing off technically. That it's insane. It feels so, there's like one shot basically, one good shot. Where you see outside, you know, Jennifer Lawrence goes to the door and you look out and it's this beautiful <laughs> wilderness, you know, very Eden-esque, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels so good because this movie is, it's a beautiful, sprawling old house, but this movie is so claustrophobic. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, something that's really crucial in talking about that is that 90% of this movie is focused entirely in extreme close-up on her face alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole thing is just... It's just... I know I've said it a million times, but it's just anxiety. Yeah. The yeah. whole thing. It's so perfectly constructed for that. It's so funny. It, it is funny. Like, I mean, I think also this is a testament to physicality in a film. Um, into, in, into using sets and not computers. Uh where yes. they could have easily done that. There could have been a lot of green, a, a lazier filmmaker than Aronofsky. I mean, he's a very meticulous, I think, probably perfectionist. Um, yes. A lazier filmmaker would have just green screened in so many, like the whole last act of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But for especially a movie where 90%, 95% of the shots are directly on your lead actor's face. And then all the other shots are of her point of view Mm -hmm. to build an entire house, interior and exterior. They built two houses, one on a soundstage and one actually out in the environment. And that's just, it's wild. But the authenticity um, that comes through, through those choices is um, unparalleled. And I think is what makes this, helps make this movie so effective beyond the performances and the, the material that they're working with. 
It's interesting that it makes it authentic while it is working in the realm of allegory for it's, the most part. It, it's, it's not completely like, unreal. It's not color out of space or something. You know what I mean? It's not Mandy where it's like, I'm going to put a colored filter over this. <laughs> that's how you know. <laughs> Everything's red. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like grounded in reality. And you're like, yeah, there's some, comp- like when the house gets reconstituted, that's a visual effect and all that. But these people mm-hmm. are inhabiting a real space and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And even, even, even when that real space, we don't even know how real it is because like you know as you described in your synopsis she touches the walls and we see the interior the viscera of the home the heart the beating right. heart mm-hmm. um we 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 hear the the she is constantly tuned into the sounds of the house we always hear the creaking and the moving of the house and it's funny that 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 those sounds were actually taken from recordings of Jennifer Lawrence breathing and were digitally altered um hmm to create those sounds. Um, so anytime you hear anything in the house, it's actually Jennifer Lawrence you're hearing. Um, hmm. It's, I appreciate again, that there's no soundtrack. Yes. That originally it was going to have music. And then they said like, this actually works better without it. Yes. And, and it sure does. It really does. And for being, it, it, it places you in that moment. It also affects your sense of time. Like, like right like with that did time pass or did she just have a seat of chucky voodoo pregnancy where like uh you're just subjected to one long quiet day that then just gets louder and louder and louder and then the the first half of the film is very bright and then it just descends into night throughout as Mm -hmm. it goes on um i really recommend to anyone interested in the technical aspects of this film i really recommend um i have the blu-ray and on the blu-ray there's a a half hour making of feature but you see the construction of the house and you see the four months of aronofsky and um jennifer lawrence and javier bardem they just sat in a brooklyn warehouse for four months and made the film rehearsed it and filmed filmed all their rehearsals and planned everything uh, it's such a shame that it was... And, and then, then it was a giant flop. I mean, it's like Suspiria. The amount of work and consideration that went into it just for people to be like, I don't know, it's talk about something I don't like. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just a setting. It's like when someone's so thoughtful about something and and then they just go, nah. Yeah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> nah. Yeah. You know how it is. <laughs> such a such a shame, yeah. such a shame. And you see too. I mean, this was a a, a movie that almost killed Jennifer Lawrence. Um, that's another th- critique that's come up is, you know, Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence dated after they filmed this. They started dating. Yeah. Um, and and then this movie already has a lot of content about the artist and the muse, and there is an age difference with them. But there's also the fact that she was physically. Uh, subjected, like I mentioned, that she tore her diaphragm and she popped a rib out. Um, in the making of, you can you see her just throw herself down a flight of stairs um, without any harness or any anything. You see, you see her hanging out, and like a bomb effect will happen, and dust flies all over her, and she just screams at the camera, "Are you fucking kidding me? Absolutely not!" <laughs> like, wow, she went through hell making this movie, but also. I think, and I think, I don't want to be like an Aronofsky apologist, but I do feel like she made the choice to take herself there with this film. 
Mm. Um, I think she she really wanted to make as authentic of an experience for the viewer as she could. And I think she put herself through hell to do that. Yeah. I think, you know, you talk about her diaphragm popping out or it's like, I remember when Jodie Foster made the accused, like a big thing was like, Oh, during, you know, the rape scene, she like tore blood vessels in her eyes Mm. from doing that. Like, I think there are things that actresses and actors do to themselves while filming because they're going there when it's in inter- when it's a question of a stunt happening or a set piece or something is there consent have they been fully informed about what's going on and is there safety in mind mm-hmm. that's my only question i haven't seen the behind the scenes and i haven't read a lot of the behind the scenes about this so i don't know yeah but you know if an actor knows like i mean you know like look what donald sutherland did and don't look now he did his own stunt when the stunt man was like that's too dangerous he opted to do it himself Oof scary you know and so if that's an informed choice that an actor is making yeah then okay yeah and in that in that making of that that one shot of the the dust exploding all over her in her face and her screaming like out of character are you fucking kidding me absolutely not that that shot makes me question that because she has owned up to the tearing of the diaphragm and all that she just says no i did that to myself that was right. that was me doing that as an actor. I went too. Right. I pushed myself too far. But then, like that, it, it that scene that shot is presented. You just see that they put it in. It's co- presented completely without context, so you don't know what happened before or after, um, or how that was received. But who knows what exactly happened there? Right. <laughs> but yeah. um. But I mean, she just fucking she commits, and she is the movie like she's the house she's the story she's she's the the camera she's everything we see she's our our entry point um and she Mm -hmm. she really fucking like i will defend jennifer lawrence forever because of her performance in this and Mm -hmm. and i like her i like her a lot i i think it's funny that you know, she's kind of vanished since doing this. She did Red Sparrow, and then she hasn't... I, I guess she got killed in an X-Men movie, but otherwise, she hasn't done... She, I mean, good for her. She's been taking a break, I think. I think this movie might have been a little much. I think it was a little much, and I think it wasn't as well-received. Before that, whatever she did was just, you know, top of the box office, whatever. She was the critic's darling, and then this comes out, and it's a flop. Yeah. And it's like... A lot of that blame is going to be put on her. Also. Yeah, and she—not that she deserves it, but you know. I mean, they after the flop, her, she and Aronofsky broke up. I mean, who knows how long they would have been together otherwise? But they broke up. She was really public about how much she appreciated her relationship with him, um, and then she was really proud of this film. She spoke very highly of it, uh, and you can see in the making of how much of herself and how much of her own. Um, uh, authorship she brought to the film because I mean literally they sat in a it was only her and Bardem and Aronofsky for those mm-hmm. those first couple of months literally building mm-hmm. the film together um, off of his script and then they incorporated Michelle Pfeiffer and Ed Harris and then everybody else and the set like f- four months in um, yeah. so she was really proud of it and then and, and she physically destroyed herself and then Everyone hated it or, or nah. didn't get it. Nah. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. I'm not surprised. 
it's I'm not surprised by the reception it got in the mainstream. No, it's there's no way you could and I guess I I think that's why the studio tried to market it the way they did because how else would yeah. you market this? It's not it's not ever going to be a blockbuster film. This is this is a art house psychedelic nightmare that's made it's, for yeah, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> it's a film it's 2017 it's not 1977 where you might have been able to get away with that kind of thing and a mainstream audience would have been more receptive to it yeah i think as time has gone on mainstream audiences have uh dumbed down i'll say it i think no absolutely i people don't <laughs> you know? like critical thinking or looking past surfaces we like to have things t- no. told to us or we like to just see things like right now we just like to live stream things we just like distraction yes. we just like to see mm-hmm. something that we don't have to unpack if it's unpacked exactly. people uh unpack it for they unbox it for us <laughs> like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and then they'll you know and then they'll go too far and you'll have your think piece about you know oh the ending explained <laughs> You get those things. You know? I think Mother might have been one of those films that actually just broke even that. People just I think so. could not figure this movie. And it's really basic when you get down it's to really it. It's really basic. Like, I think there's several. I think you and I both have big, like, our biggest takeaways, I think, are different. And they're both, but they're both very obvious. Yeah. I think they're complementary, too. Valid. I think they're, I think they're yeah. both functioning at the same time. Um, yes. I mean, for our viewers that have watched this and have listened to this and still don't. I mean, my takeaway, I mean, obviously, like when you referred to the outside as it's very Eden-like, the home, this is the Earth. Mother is Mother Earth. Um, Him, a.k.a. when she says, who are you at the end as he's carrying her, he says, I am I. He is God. Uh, He he has written one thing that was received well. Um, We never see it or know what it is. Um, the man shows up. That's Adam. Eve is his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer. Cain and Abel, the first murder, show up. Mm-hmm. Um, you even all the way down to overpopulation. They show up in the house. They begin changing things. They begin painting things. These house guests. They're altering the earth. It begins to get hot in the house. Um, it's a little apparent. <laughs> global warming, man. The great mm-hmm. flood happens. She triggers the great flood inadvertently when Stevie won't stop bouncing on the sink. There's an enormous flood and it chases everyone out. There is a moment of pause. He writes the Old Testament. We get the birth of Christ. And then simultaneous with that birth of Christ, a.k.a. her child that they eat, um, like any Catholic communion does, uh, mm-hmm. you get you get human history of the last 2,000 years played out alongside the coming of Christ and this expectation of Christ's re-arrival that, no, he's not really dead. He still exists. Right. He's coming back. Mm-hmm. And yet we continue to enslave people. We continue to enslave and, and um, rape women. Uh, we, we have wars. We, <laughs> we don't learn anything. And then these cycles continue across civilizations. And and I think what I love is I just feel like it's such a scathing indictment. Like it's all of Aronofsky's work is built, built based around religion really. And, or a majority of it. And um, this one I think is him at his most angry. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And it, and it is interesting too. So then with the artist muse thing that he's 
to some extent kind of implicating himself maybe but there's also just a takedown of men that men that in the same way it's interesting to take the artist muse and look at that and how human beings treat the earth Mm -hmm. that it is just something that you take from even though it is your source you are the greatness not it you right. you deserve respect and 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 um sanctification and good treatment not it not her right mhm yeah well he you know the artist i mean he's the only one with the in the credits he's the only character name who deserves a capital letter mm-hmm. right so we're told he's the most important obviously he's god um He's the creator. He's the genius man creator that is adored. Um, He's got his muse, who is easily replaced. I love looking at this alongside... Just watching this play out and thinking about the artist-muse relationship. I say to myself, thank God for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. My God. That finally deconstructs that relationship and builds it up into one of equality. Mm-hmm. Because this movie, it's it's critical of it, but given Aronofsky's penchant for dating his leading ladies, mm-hmm. you wonder, like, you know you're a part of that, right, dude? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, like, there's an arrogance to having this poet character be the man genius when you're making a statement about yourself also, mm-hmm. right? Um. It's a very sort of, it still conforms to the idea of the artist muse as like a patriarchal sort of relationship. It's a genius man who's generally older. It's the beautiful younger woman who inspires him, but doesn't have a voice. You know, she's constantly asking. He just ignores her. Um, He ignores her and everything that's important. His home, his wife. His family, this relationship, he ignores all of that for the adoration of the crowd. Um, She asks him repeatedly, please make them go. Please make them go. And he won't because he's addicted to the attention from these people. Conversely, these crowds, it's uh, an indictment of the crowds who just take and take and take from artists. Yeah. Like, just continually take without any thought to the person behind the creation. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a huge critique of consumerism, of capitalism. But yeah, so it's, it's another, when you look at the artist-muse relationship, if you, when you look at the film in those terms, it's, again, it comes into that, like, what is this person trying to say versus what am I getting out of it? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's almost like critical of the stereotypical artist muse while completely reinforcing it. And he reinforces that whole thing in his own private life. Aronofsky does. Yeah. And that's the problem. I think, I think it is, I think he does. I think he is with this statement and with even the relationship with Jennifer Lawrence and all that. I think he is, he's implicating himself in it, but then what does he do with that? That's the thing. What are you going to do with that? Like, is this, are you going to learn the lessons? Yeah. Is this a warning? And is this calling yourself out in the process? Right. Like, I do like the fact that, you know, other characters do call attention to the fact that the poet is so much older than his wife. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because for a while there, Jennifer Lawrence was getting cast for roles that she was way too young for. Oh, Opposite yeah. men who were much older than her. Yeah, what was that and 70s like, one where she was like a mob wife or whatever? Yeah, Explosion at the Wig Factory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, like gosh, she's like 19. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. She like was popular for a minute. And so they just cast her in everything. And it's like there are other young actors. And so when this the first time I saw this movie, I was like, oh, here we go again. Right. Like they're mismatched, whatever. And then finally, like Ed Harris shows up and is like, that's your wife. I thought it was your daughter. And I'm like, OK, phew. Yeah, you're at least acknowledging it and it has a purpose in this film. Yeah, because in Hollywood, what, there's three ages for women and age roles. There's the ingenue, um, there's uh, Meryl Streep as now the crone, and then there's Jennifer Lawrence as the middle-aged woman. (laughs) It's like 20-year-old Jennifer Lawrence as a middle-aged woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the movie is Silver Linings Playbook or whatever she was supposed to be like 40. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, there are actual 40-year-old actors out there that can play that part, you know? So I like that they do call attention to it. And so it's like, okay, Aronofsky's got some self-awareness here, but like, what... Are you like, what are you going to do with that? Yes. How are you going to change things? It's one thing to make a statement about it. It's another to put it into action and make some changes. Yeah. You know, I think and I think this movie is a fantastic way of of bringing these topics up and really and and making a statement about it. I just it it is to me is still just such a shame that nobody could see that was what was happening. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then how effective is this statement? unfortunately um man this movie i personally i mean this movie (laughs) i this movie i do i will admit to enjoying the first half or whatever better Mm -hmm. than i do the second half just because the early on i still love the feeling of like what's gonna happen who are these people who like you know once michelle pfeiffer and ed harris leave Oh, yeah. I mean, it's Michelle's time to shine, man. It's Michelle's time to shine. And I love the horror vibe. And that sort of, you know, it feels like a classic kind of everyone conspiring against the wife kind of gaslighty sort of film. Mm-hmm. And I that's I love that little sub-sub-genre, whatever you want to call it. Um, but this whole thing is... What uh, an underrated film. Yeah. I truly, truly love this movie. I really think it's a masterpiece. It's, um, I think, I, I honestly think in 10 years, if there is a 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah, don't hold your breath. I know. Like, I, I mean, I think in a kinder, more thoughtful future, I think films like this and Suspiria will be regarded as uh, really thoughtful, important works of art that were yeah. very misaligned or misunderstood when they came out. Um, yeah, it'll have its time. It might take longer than 10. I think, yeah, might maybe 25, tw- might be, 30 Might years. be a 20, yeah. Um, for both of those, probably. But, yeah, it's, man, it's, um, and it leaves me still, I still have, I think this was my third watch of it. I still have lots of questions. I still have lots of new observations. I really am impacted by, I think it's really simple and, direct and even though it was not regarded as such but i think it's um kind of brilliant in that simplicity to take artist muse bible humanity earth humans earth consumer and line all those things up alongside each other 
I think um, mm-hmm. I think there's a, another a nice not just of, of religion, but I think there's a nice scathing with uh, heteros- a scathing critique of heterosexuality to a degree of reproduction and consumption and um, the sort of heterosexual obsession with uh, leaving your mark of um, mm. reproducing and physically leaving a mark of um, uh, for, for for futurity. People always think of of uh, of the planet and the and history in terms of of their lineage and their 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 legacy what will come after i don't don't get it i've personally i've never thought in those terms i do think in those terms with stuff i've made like i mean i mean maybe it's the same thing I don't know. Well, I, think I think that's about how... it and I'm like, I think what work am I going to leave behind? How are people then once I'm gone, are they going to be able to pick up a book or read a website or something? You want to feel like you made some kind of a difference, but I've never translated that to I must have a child. Well, like... Stacy, then you're doing it all wrong because you need your plot of land, you need your castle and you need your family that lives in the castle through the end of time. Every, you I, got the wrong I, memo, girlfriend. <laughs> I got the wrong memo. My memo is like maybe I'll write something that somebody will read someday and be like, whether they've ever heard of me or not, they read a thing and they're like, oh, this is good. <laughs> like that's yeah. it. You know? <laughs> well, and that's I think that's the difference. I think I think queer people and I think artists because we don't. Uh, well, artists have no future ever, but <laughs> neither do queers. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, but <laughs> we're done. but I think artists and queer people. I think um, we operate in a space where uh we um it's it's output it's work it's thought is what we want to survive but i think right. i think other culture and mindsets and more dominant mindsets want a physical trace and for many that's yeah. reproduction that's i mean in this film the painting and the altering of the house by the house guests we we have people ripping out like they're yeah later on they're ripping off the phone like that woman that's like oh no it's okay and just steals the phone (laughs) like there's people stealing phones and doorknobs and parts of the house are like oh now i have to go find something else like Mm -hmm. there there there's all that happening but um, she talks to there's actually a, a moment with an indigenous actor where she says, what are you doing? He's taking apart part of the wall and he says, it's proof we were here. Yeah. And it there's people just look at the planet and and human history, culture, uh, countries as as excuses or places to make a mark. Um, it's like when you go to a, when you go to a national park and some fucking dipshit has spray painted at Joshua tree, their name or tagged it. Right. Oh God. It just, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I don't even want a picture of myself in front of the Joshua tree. I know I was there. I don't need to see a picture of myself in front of it. But like, why not just have a picture of the tree if you're going to take? It's a that terror of death, I guess, or it's that it's the, the yeah. obsession with futurity that you will continue, you will proliferate, you will continue to have kids, they will continue to proliferate. Proliferation equals domination equals consumption. Ultimately, we don't we don't recognize that this obsession with futurity this obsession with reproduction is what has gotten us to this point of climate change um right of environmental collapse coronavirus more so than you know oh god what were they doing with those wet marks and markets in china coronavirus is more so symptomatic like what we're experiencing right now is more symptomatic of environmental devastation and human beings crossing dangerously into the into animals environments um mm-hmm. where now 
because these animals are are shedding viruses and these viruses are mutating in a way that um, has never happened before because these animals are terrified as their habitats are being destroyed, that virus is mutating and now spreading to people. Um, So it's like we're just not learning from this. And I think so much of it comes down to that religious Christian mindset of this house, mother's house, which we are all squatters in, this house, this environment, it's like Michelle Pfeiffer says, have kids. This, this house, this is all just setting. People think of the earth as a waiting room for heaven. So, it's, which is tear just it apart. crazy because if you're going to be <laughs> the religious type, right? Like, God created the earth. Why would you not respect it? Take care of it and respect it. Like, it's God's greatest creation, right? Well, luckily, God. Aside from man. I mean, I know man is. Yeah. But if those people are going to get pissed off about a tattoo, how could you do that to God's creation? If right? you're going to get pissed off about a tattoo or a, a fetus, like. Yeah. <laughs> Like, don't throw your garbage outside. Like, take care of the fucking... Pl- I just don't understand. People are dum-dums. You, That's what it all comes down to. People are dumb. You can't call yourself pro-life and also kill the planet, man. Because right. that's the source of life. <laughs> like, as mm-hmm. stoner b- uncle as that might sound. It's true. It's just... And it, it, the amount of rage that I think is built into this film, too, that I experience in not being able to comprehend how we allow ourselves to be ignorant of this very basic fact um is is in incomparable it's uh it's just so and that's why i like the cyclicalness of this story in this film too is that we never learn <laughs> and no we never learn it's, it's just getting worse just and going worse to and worse. keep it's just going to continue and we had a shot Mm-hmm. At the end of the '60s into the '70s, we had a little shot there, yep, little window, and then Ronald Reagan happened, yep, <laughs> right. And I don't know what happened to all those free love boomers, but then the '80s happened, and they all just got so fucking greedy. Well, cocaine was a hell of a drug, Stacy. Cocaine and disco really just <laughs> brought about the end. I mean, we were all up in arms about that uh, jazz and, and Charleston's back in the day, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the 50s and, you know, the evangelical right started to, like, worm its way. I mean, well, it goes back to our founding with the Puritans. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, I mean, you know, it's just this has been our end game for the writing's been on the wall for hundreds of years. But it really the train really started hurtling towards the end of the track. Yeah. In the 80s, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And when all the all the free love hippies suddenly discovered money and that money was the, the only thing mm-hmm. they didn't read enough joan didion they, <laughs> they didn't listen to enough grateful Dead. oh god yeah where were you at were you you weren't even going to earth day concerts were you all i wasn't <laughs> none of us were so yeah like um uh oh it's i think i mean and this is my hope uh, and obviously i might be preaching to the choir with our listeners because we've got cool queer listeners but like you know I, I would like to hope that what we're experiencing now could be our version of that window in the 60s, 70s. This could, we are seeing all the structural impossibilities. This has exposed the constructedness of all our structures that we have taken for granted as just how life is, how American culture is, how the world works, how money works, how jobs work. Get back to work, everyone. 
and we could change that it's i don't know that it's possible but we could i mean if there's ever a time to do it it's now like emerging from this plague time when and if we ever do this would be the time we could completely rewrite society Mm -hmm. however as a member of gen x i say good luck yep that's never gonna happen it's never gonna happen it's never gonna happen hopefully hopefully uh people can learn from it and we can take these memories when we do reach complete environmental catastrophe and not just economic and and uh health catastrophe and um which i mean we're already at environmental catastrophe but i mean hopefully we can learn and maybe the people that survive after the sixth extinction the very few people left can come up with a more hopeful system um let's leave them a time capsule that's got a printout of final girl (laughs) entries and recordings of gaylords and videos of your performance and they're like and, and then um thousands of years from now uh there will be a little book a little little textbooks and they'll show um you know it'll be like a lucy brief but <laughs> briefcase, briefcase woman. woman but they'll think she's stacy ponder <laughs> Every, i'm not her <laughs> just a reminder everyone stacy just a reminder i am not briefcase, briefcase woman, woman. <laughs> you know what that when i say like oh i just want to leave something behind when i die blah 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 I got to think about that because, like, what happens when I die and no one is paying the bill for the Final Girl domain name? Oh, shit. That site is not going to last very long after I die. You're going to have to, you're going to have to do what um, Agatha Van Helsing did and set up a trust. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. With my stimulus check. With your stimulus check. Yeah, Yeah, you could either either eat for a few weeks (laughs) or or you could um, Can either pay pay May's rent (laughs) or, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like that's a thing to consider. Yeah. My legacy, my review of Slumber Party Massacre 2 must live on. <laughs> I mean, for real, it's got to. That sex goblin, come on. My my beautiful daughters must all live. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, but th- I think that's a good question, you know. How do we, how do we, how do we ethically leave um, a mark? How do we ethically and environmentally and sustainably leave a mark? Uh, and also look out for this world. Um, yeah. And I guess if nothing else, this is my plea to please, I know I don't like this option, but please vote for Joe Biden come November if you can vote, <laughs> no if there kidding. is voting. Uh, because, yeah, he seems not ideal. He fucking sucks. He fucking sucks. But you know who's way worse? That big old orange yeah. fascist. Um, and all the people that go along with him and the fact that, uh, you know, it's about more than just holding the office of the presidency. It's about probably selecting Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement on the Supreme let's Court. Let's be real. That woman is not. I mean, she is fighting as hard as she can. And she is also up there. Yeah. But if you want to literally like help save the planet, the clock is fucking ticking. And four more years of Trump, which if it's four more years, I think it's going to be the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I don't think he will leave after four more years. No, I don't think so. And when he finally is ready to leave, he will just have his daughter take over. Yeah. 
He's rewriting rules all the time. He's a despot. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really important. No one wants to vote for Joe Biden, but we must do what we must. Exactly. Nobody fucking wants to do this, except like somebody with, uh, what was this Onion article I saw? Like, um, (laughs) friends of millennial Biden supporter want her parents to also pay their rent. (laughs) But like... (laughs) But, you know, none of us want that, that, him, but um, I would like to think we do want uh, to vote in place of all the voices and all the people that can't vote who are now living in cages during a pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. We want to vote uh, with the hope that the Supreme Court remains balanced um, or finds some semblance of balance. Uh, we would like to hope that women and and people with uh, uteruses continue to find reproductive options in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to think about maybe not yourself perhaps, or your moral purity, or your moral purity. You have to think about the most vulnerable person you know, and it might be you. And you, ha- I know that it's like lesser of two evils. Uh, less rapey of two rapies is not a great choice to make and probably most of us he's nowhere near the candidate that we wanted but it's better than the alternative absolutely and and like this i mean this is as this movie has deep in its core um we are nine years away before the earth begins to become uninhabitable and we have about a four-year uh, clock ticking. Ironically, four years of time that we have left to mobilize at World War II level, at pandemic level right now, to sustain four years of constant action to even begin to reverse that nine-year countdown. So... Yay! So what was with that thing in the toilet in the movie? <laughs> it was a heart, right? Was it a heart? Because it, it looked kind of like the weird house heart. I wasn't sure if that was viscera or if that, I was like, is that Eve? It looked like a heart to me. And then when it squeezed in the hole. It, it shot out blood. shot out blood. I was like, yeah. is that, is that, because the last time we saw the heart was man or Adam was puking naked in it. So I assume that was the birthing of Eve. But, and his rib, he had the rib wound. But I was like, but it was really placenta and also kind of alive. So I was like, was that Eve's afterbirth or was that Lilith? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> that damn toilet entity. I've always wondered what that is. Yeah. I often wonder what. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so with that said, <laughs> with all those PSAs on the way and this... I know, we just turned off so many listeners with our proselytizing about the vote coming but up. But you know it's what? fucking crucial. It's if, crucial. If right now, it's really, it's really easy to tune off and just live stream or whatever, but this is really fucking crucial. And, and we would like to hope that our listeners feel the same way. And please spread that same kind of word uh, to your communities. Yeah. Um, because this really could be a great moment, and I don't want to see it wasted. I, I think it, yeah. uh, otherwise, all, what are all of these deaths for? That is um, true. So we owe it to the dead. We owe this at the very least to them and to the planet. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and all you heterosexuals having kids, God love you. But <laughs> if you want, if you want to sustain your future bloodline you're obsessed with, then maybe 
maybe you also need to start thinking about the planet and people beyond yourselves. So with that beast and this beast of a fucking movie out of the way, Stacy, do we have a listener question today? Uh, yeah, of course we do. Oh, well, spoiler alert. We have a question from John. Just hey, John. John. Just John. Thanks, John. Uh, the question <laughs> is, which horror movie death hurt you the most and why? <laughs> now, see, this was a brutal movie, but I've seen some brutal deaths before. Yeah. This was a hard one, honestly. This was a really hard one, yeah. Because I create, I have a, I have a fucking list, and I have sub-lists. Oh <laughs> I know the question was which one was the most, but... Yeah, man, I, oh kept, I kept my list short. Um, it's difficult as a horror fan because, you know, you know going in that everybody's game. Like, everybody is a potential victim, right? Mm-hmm. So... And everyone's a suspect. Every, yeah, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, and often horror movies aren't, you don't have that much of an emotional connection to them, even. So you say, oh, did Chili die? Friday the 13th, part three? Okay. <laughs> you know. Chili. <laughs> R.I.P. Chili. R.I.P. Chili. You know. Oh. <laughs> but you're not probably going to get broken up over it. But sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. So you have lists and sublists. What's the number one? My number one is actually two, but it's the same movie. Uh, my number one is, and this was hard because there's a lot of really, really close ones. But just right now in this moment, um, my number one is Joanna and Bobby in the Stepford Wives. Mm. Catherine um, Ross. And Paula Prentice. Yeah. I've said this time and again. I mean, they make that movie. I love that movie. It's, despite being made by men, it's one of my favorite feminist texts. Um, and it is so felt when how much they love each other and that friendship is so perfectly enacted and embodied in that film. And then to know it's taken away and that they're snuffed out and replaced is... I like I get emotional thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. I love those two characters. It and and it's funny because their deaths are off screen. Mm-hmm. You only see the after with both of them. You see them as robots after the fact, and that almost makes it worse. Is that they just disappear? Yeah. And yeah, that one's a really hard one for me. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love them. I love the Stepford Wives. It's a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess following close behind them, um, uh, Malin Ackerman, man, in the final girls. Uh, and that's not a spoiler alert because she dies early on in that movie. I mean, she dies several times in that movie. But um, I love her. I love that film. Uh, Heather Donahue. Hmm. It's rough. I love Heather. Yeah. And I don't like seeing her subjected to so much misogyny before she takes it on herself and internalizes it and believes it and then dies alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Those are, the, those are, oh, and also the gym teacher and Carrie. Oh, yeah. It's real sad. It's real sad. Yeah. Carrie. Yeah. It's real sad. Carrie's real sad. Those are, those are my big, big ones. Yeah. My big bigs, my big, big, big one. My big one. 
Uh, <laughs> the big P. The big P. Stacy Jr. Uh, <laughs> would be Sarah in Suspiria. Yeah. 2018. She was next um, on my list. Um, she is the embodiment of kindness. Kindness. She's second, perhaps, to Anka. She is the light of that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and just watching her friendship and maybe more with Susie blossom over the course of the film is wonderful. And she's a talent and she's curious and will go to bat for her friends, et cetera, et cetera. And for her to die such a horrible death is really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, her, I mean, her death begins in that hallway when she breaks her leg. And it's that scene is just excruciating for me to watch. Um, I hate that she dies. I love those witches. I hate that they killed her. I hate it. I always am like, couldn't Susie have just like been like, you're fixed. But Sarah she, wanted to die. She wanted to die. She, I mean, like, like she had been through it. She had been through it, it and was, didn't want to come back. From it her. was long and drawn out. And Mia Goth sells that. Oh, God, she's so good. She's so good. Um, number two is Beth in The Descent. Oh, oh, Beth, how could I forget you? Perfect Beth. Such a good friend. Perfect right up to the end. gay Beth. Perfect gay Beth. Um, it's such a terrible death that Sarah has to basically put her out of her misery before she can die an even more horrible death. Um, it's just sad. That's such a sad movie. And, uh... Beth is my favorite. Every woman in that, it's a tragedy. Yeah. Except, well, except Juno. <laughs> <laughs> um, except the, you know, the other one there. Holly. Oh, the, oh, the, yeah, and the other one. <laughs> and Holly. Yeah. Five, five queens and Holly. Yeah, uh, no, but I just, uh, Beth's, Beth's is perhaps the most poignant of the film. And uh, it's, you know, she's killed sort of inadvertently. She's, you know, she doesn't die the horrible death by the the crawlers she's not a vengeance death that you're kind of cheering for like juno's you know it's just it's sad and it that's probably i mean what makes it hers the hardest is that she doesn't get killed by the monsters like they just get their right like the sister just gets her throat slashed but like it's fast yeah she suffers and she suffers alone and at the hand of her friend yeah yep and that it's put on sarah to to deal with it's really hard and my third i only picked three otherwise i'd be here all day uh but i picked barbara from the original night of the living dead oh that went through my head yeah um i wrote a piece about that on final girl which you should read before i die and the site becomes a 404 um (laughs) (laughs) barbara she's our main character she's a good girl who goes to church every week she's you know She's kind and kind of square, you know, she's a bit of a pill, but she dies a really horrible death. Um, You know, the kind of death that she gets is in later zombie films is reserved for the character that we hate the most. She's, you know, pulled out the window. She sees her brother and she freezes and he grabs her and they pull her out the window and she's torn apart by zombies. And that kind of feast scene 
death in zombie cinema is reserved for the characters that we hate because it's so horrible and you get a little thrill when like captain Rhodes and day of the dead finally gets pulled apart by the zombies Mm -hmm. instead it happens to the nice girl it happens to our lead it happens to the girl who goes to church every week and makes a point to put flowers on her grandfather's grave every year her father's Mm -hmm. grave every year and I hate it. And I always hope that Barbara's going to get away and survive this horrible fucking day she's had. But she never does. So R.I.P. Barbara. R.I.P. Barbara. Man, Judith O'Day, what a fucking queen. Saint. Mm-hmm. Love her. Love her. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I I have uh, additional shout outs to um, uh, um, Annie's. Both Annies, um, Nancy Loomis and Halloween. And mm. um, I really, everyone hates it, and uh, probably rightfully so. I'm, I'm a fan, but um, in Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie one, uh, I think Danielle Harris really sold uh, that character's arc, and it was really sad for me when that Annie died also. Um, Maddie in Friday the 13th, part 7, after she gets that makeover, I'm so bummed every time she gets killed because she was so happy. Uh, <laughs> and Lizzie Kaplan in Cloverfield. I was so sad when she yeah. exploded. Um, that was rough. <laughs> when she explodes behind that screen and yeah. you, just, you just see the silhouette of her exploding. Yeah. Uh, that sucked. I love Lizzie Kaplan. Um, I also, Stacy, created three a list of three stupid deaths that enraged me that never should have happened in horror. Mm. One, Rachel in Halloween Five. Mm. Don't mm-hmm. buy it for a second. Didn't happen. Uh, Sue Snell in the Rage Carry Two. Don't buy it. Didn't happen. Sue Snell lives. Everyone, we all know this. It's basic fact sue snell always lives um and then finally the one that pissed me off more than anything and we did a whole episode about this laurie strode in halloween resurrection yeah i wrote that down as the one that angered me like nobody's business it's a miracle that i sat through that whole movie the first time it's an even bigger miracle that i was like yeah let's do an episode about it like what the fuck (laughs) were we thinking God but hey, holy. you never would have got that tree tease on Michael Myers. Um, fresh fennel. His fresh fennel. <laughs> That's true. This is true. The gourmet trappings of Michael Myers. That's true. Michael, isn't his middle name Judith? <laughs> Michael Judith Myers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what the headstone was, right? Yeah. <laughs> what a time! Happy Earth Day, everyone. <laughs> For a haunted tome made out of skin, it's so loosely structured, yet informative. I know, right? Uh, Is it over? It's glowing and spinning on its own, so I'm gonna guess yes. Ah, Oh oh my my god! God. Oh my my god! God. Tune in next time for more Gaylords of Darkness! Ha, ha, ha.